Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 11. And over these last three weeks, we've looked at attitudes for church growth. And the very first attitude that we looked at was an attitude of expectancy. And this is where the disciples were told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And while they certainly didn't understand what that meant, they were undoubtedly very excited and gathered together and prayed with a great sense of expectancy waiting on the fulfillment of what the Father had promised to them. We also looked at an attitude of fellowship where we learned more about how our relationships are to be spiritually centered, we're to be joined together in discipleship and prayer for the purpose of enjoying who God has made us to be, to come together to further God's purposes in our own lives individually and in the lives of the body of believers that we have been joined to. Last week we looked at an attitude of courage, and because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we have the courage to stand for God, to speak in Jesus' name, to speak on His authority to share the life-changing message of the Gospel. And this is what I want to ask you. Is the Gospel truly a life-changing message? You see, if it is not, then everything that we do is in vain. If it is not, then all that we have done for the Lord has made no difference at all. But because we believe that the Gospel carries with it a life changing message, we ought to embrace this final attitude of church growth, and that is an attitude of outreach. As we continue from Acts chapter 4, let me hit the highlights of what we're not going to focus on as we get to the attitude of outreach. In Acts chapter 5, the ministry of Peter and the apostles continues to bring thousands into the church as they preach the resurrected Christ. There are many signs and wonders and miracles taking place. God is affirming the authority of the apostles. He is validating their message through the miracles that they are performing. They are also imprisoned again, and as they are gathered together, they are miraculously freed in the middle of the night. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to an individual by the name of Stephen, who is also preaching the resurrected Christ, and he is garnered the attention of the religious leaders just as Peter had. And he was called before the Sanhedrin, asked to give an account of what it was he preached and why. And he began in Acts chapter 7 to explain why he preached what he did, who Jesus was, and he delivered a scathing, rebuking message to the religious leaders. They were so incensed that they immediately drug him out of the city gates and stoned him to death. Acts chapter 8 introduces us to the individual by the name of Saul, who is the leader of the persecution movement against the church. And Stephen's death brings about a scattering of the believing community all over the region. Yet as these believers flee from persecution, they are faithful to continue to preach the message of new life in Christ. Acts chapter 9 brings us the conversion of Saul, who very quickly begins to preach and teach in the temple areas. The latter half of Acts 9 and chapter 10 focus on Peter and the inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan 
to be a part of this gospel message. So in chapter 10, Peter has this vision. He's sent to Cornelius' home. He preaches the message. Cornelius believes. His whole household believes. They are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that brings us into chapter 11. Chapter 11, Peter comes back to the church in Jerusalem. He gives an account of what had taken place in Caesarea, how the Holy Spirit had fallen on the new believers just as it had been. And here's the concluding verse which serves as a transition in the entirety of the book of Acts. Acts 11.18 When they heard this, Peter's report about the Gentiles being filled with the Spirit, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Initially, when they had heard about what was going on with Peter, they were very concerned because the Gentiles were not Jews. There was still an enormous amount of prejudice being expressed against the Gentiles. And here, in this chapter, God has broken down the barrier between the two people groups. Peter has told them that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And with this verse, the focus of the book of Acts begins to change. The realization that the Gentiles were to be included in God's plan of redemption was one of the most shocking admissions in Jewish history. God wasn't for the Jew alone, but for all the world. Now that's not new. This was a part of the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. Only one Jewish nation, but he was going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And through the the Jewish observance of who God was, of their faithfulness to him, of their obedience to him, all the world was supposed to come to know Yahweh just as the nation of Israel did. But here it takes on a radically new belief now that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same spirit that has filled them has also filled the Gentile believers. And now they recognize that God isn't for the Jew alone. Now, from the beginning of the book of Acts to where we are in Acts chapter 11, scholars estimate that at least seven years of time has passed. Some would project even more than that. We read this as if it's just been a matter of a few weeks, but actually it has taken place over several years. During this time, the authority of the apostles had been established. The core of their doctrine about Jesus as Messiah had been taught and established. It was God's timing to begin the global mission of reaching the world just as Jesus said the apostles would. Reminder about Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascended into heaven for the final time. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The scattering of the church by the way of persecution, God was going to use to accomplish Acts 1 verse 8. It is unlikely that many of these Believers who were scattered would have done so voluntarily. It took the persecution of the church to move them out 
And what man intended for harm, God was going to use for good because the gospel message was going to be preached everywhere. So as I mentioned, Acts 11 is a point of transition in the book of Acts. We see a transition from an emphasis on Peter to an emphasis on Paul. We see a transition from an emphasis on the Jewish church in Jerusalem to the Gentile church that is now going to be established through the missionary journeys of Paul. We see a transition from the Jerusalem church to this church in Antioch that we're going to be introduced to to today. And no longer will the focus be on the Jewish nation, but on the Gentile church that is being birthed through the work of Paul and Barnabas and others. So from this point on, with the exclusion of Acts chapter 15, the church at Antioch holds center stage through the majority of the book of Acts. Now, in our passage here today, we're going to pick up where verse chapter 8, verse 4 left off, which is the impact of the persecution of the church, which is highlighted by Stephen's death. So let's look together at Acts 11. We're going to read verses 19 through 30, and then we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. So remember, there's, the Stephen has been uh, martyred, the church is scattered, and here's where it picks up. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who had believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of the named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And the the portion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did, and this they did, sending it, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now over in Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had, brought up, who, was, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So we're going to look at this in, these, in this singular attitude of outreach. And there's going to be four traits that are going to be a part of this attitude of outreach. Before we get there, we're going to look at the beginning. And this is really the beginning of the birth 
of the Gentile church. Verse 19a, the first part of that. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now Phoenicia was just north of the region of Judea and Cyprus was another 60 miles off the shore by boat. And Antioch was another 200 miles north of this area of Cyprus. And so the beginning is going to focus in Antioch. The Gentile church was not going to be birthed in Jerusalem. It was going to be birthed out of the scattering of the church due to persecution in this city of Antioch. Antioch was among the least likely of places to find what would be the most powerful Christian fellowship of the first century. Imagine, if you will, that the most powerful presence of the church anywhere in the United States was none other than Las Vegas, Nevada. What is Las Vegas, Nevada called? It is called Sin City. And this is exactly what Antioch is. Antioch is the modern-day equivalent of our Sin City. Antioch is one of 16 cities by that name that are referenced throughout the Bible. This is Syrian Antioch, which was the third largest city of the Roman Empire, second only to Rome and to Alexandria. It had a population of about 500,000 people. It was called Antioch the Beautiful, and it was the capital of the East. It was one of the most modern cities of its day with public baths, central plumbing and heating. It was an important trade center. It was also very cosmopolitan with large Jewish, Syrian, Greek, and Roman communities. And the citizens of Antioch had gained a reputation for pleasure-seeking and low morals. Now, it sounds very current today, doesn't it? We live in a culture that is all about the pleasure of self with very little, very little in the way of morals. In fact, it seems that our culture finds a new low with each passing decade of the morality of our population. But this city was located, excuse me, but in this city was located the Temple of Daphne, Hear this, the temple of Daphne engaged in ritual prostitution. So as a part of your worship of one of the pantheon of gods in the city of Antioch, you would go to the temple and you would engage in ritual prostitution. Yet we find in the midst of this paganism and prostitution that the most powerful church in the first century was born. It is evident in our passage of Scripture that the church of Antioch was born because of an attitude of outreach, and it was an attitude that they continued throughout the first century. These believers in Christ were scattered because of their faith in Christ. They have, re- they have relocated some 200 miles away, and what are they doing? They get there, and they continue to teach others about Christ. So this attitude of outreach is going to be expressed by four traits. The first one is this. The attitude of outreach is rooted in evangelism. That seems kind of redundant, but we need to understand that it was very intentional what they were doing. We begin this exploration in the last part of verse 19, speaking the word to no one except to Jews 
alone. Now, this attitude of outreach is rooted in evangelism first to the Jews. Now, if you remember, when Stephen was stoned, believers began to scatter, and they were not aware of what had taken place in the house of Cornelius and how the Gentiles have been included in God's plan of redemption. So these Jews, these Palestinian Jews who had now arrived in Antioch, had no knowledge of the Gentile conversion, and so they were preaching only to the Jews because they believed that the message of Christ was for the Jew. Paul would go on and talk about salvation is to the Jew first, right? And then to the rest of the world because Jesus is the Messiah. God's plan of redemption was rooted in Judaism. So these initial scattered disciples arrive in Antioch and they're teaching about Jesus to the Jews. So they did not yet have this global understanding of the gospel message, but this wasn't a message preached only to the Jews. It was also preached to the Gentiles. We see this in verse 20. But there were some of them, some that eventually would scatter, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, Cyprus and Cyrene are Gentile regions, and although there is a Jewish population there, they are not predominant. It is predominantly a non-Jewish region. And there are converts to Judaism, and these are called Greek-speaking Jews. So these Greek-speaking Jews have come to Antioch, and what are they doing? Well, they're preaching the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles there. And so you have both people groups who are being evangelized by these, these disciples who have been scattered as a result of the persecution of the church. And here we find in verse 20, in verse 21, that the Gentile church is born. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now that phrase there, the hand of the Lord, in the Old Testament meant two things. Now remember, the, Old, the New Testament is written with the Old Testament as a foundational background, and so there's many, many words and phrases and terms that have their root meaning in the Old Testament. So the hand of the Lord in the Old Testament meant one of two things. The hand of the Lord was his judgment against someone or against something, or the hand of the Lord was his blessing on someone or something. It is quite obvious what this is referring to here. These Greek-speaking Jews who were preaching the message of Jesus to the Gentiles in Antioch brought significant results and gave birth to the non-Jewish church. Despite the persecution that resulted in them leaving Judea, both Palestinian Jews and these Greek-speaking Jews were faithful to tell other people about Jesus. They were literally and figuratively, figuratively moved out of their comfort zones, and yet they still shared the gospel. Now think about this. The reason they left was because they saw one of their own stoned to death under the accusation of blasphemy. And so they ran in fear for their lives. They're now relocating in one of the most pagan and one of the most immoral cities they could ever imagine. They are literally and they are figuratively 
outside of their comfort zone, and yet they're going to continue to do the very thing that caused them to leave in the first place. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? We must learn to move out of our own personal comfort zone, literally and figuratively, in order to tell others about Jesus. We each have a comfort zone. For the average church, the comfort zone ends at the door. Inside the church, we'll praise Jesus, we'll talk about Jesus, we'll share with others what's going in our life, what's going on in our life. We'll talk about what Jesus has done and how much we need him. But once we leave the doors, we zip the lip. We fear what others might think or say or do. And when we leave the church, we are out of our comfort zone and we've forgotten why God has saved us. We have lost sight of the Acts 1-8 message, which begins with, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Chester County is our Jerusalem. When we leave the doors of our church, we are to be entering into what is, in our perspective, the mission field of Chester County that needs to be evangelized. How many people today are sitting in their house, sleeping in their bed, golfing at their course, fishing in their lake, shopping at their mall, and have absolutely no God consciousness at all in their life. If we are going to be evangelistic, we are going to have to move outside the doors of our church and engage a lost community. Now, statistically speaking, only about 10% of Christians identify within themselves the gift of evangelism. Only 10% of professing Christians identify that they possess the gift of evangelism. Well, if that is true, then what is the church to do? Some say, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I have a hard time talking to my family about Christ, let alone talking to somebody that I work with or a neighbor across the street or a stranger that I don't even know. Well, I don't possess the gift of evangelism, so I guess I will leave that responsibility to the 10% that have it. That's what I'll do. That makes sense to me. God's okay with that, right? Well, you know, when the Great Commission was given, and when Jesus spoke the Acts 1-8 message to the disciples, it really wasn't isolated to them and them alone. It was a mandate given to the church and to Christians throughout all time. There is no asterisk, there is no addendum, an appendix, which says you're exempted if you don't possess the gift of evangelism. We must individually learn how to share the gospel through our existing relationships, and that's called relationship evangelism. There are books and pamphlets and courses that teach us how to engage our lost friends and family members into spiritual conversations that open the door for us to share with them the truth of the gospel message. But 
We can't just rely upon relational evangelism. Why? Because the vast majority aren't going to do it. Statistically speaking, I spent most of my life in Southern Baptist churches, and the last time I checked that statistical information, it took around 100 Southern Baptists to see one individual saved, and the Southern Baptist denomination is the largest Protestant denomination in the country. There were at one time some 15 million professing Southern Baptists in the United States, and it takes a hundred of them to have one person saved. I don't know that that statistic is very different from other Protestant denominations, but you and I can't rely upon the individuals who possess the gift of evangelism to share the truth about who Jesus is. We have been called individually. We have been called corporately to share that truth. I believe that we must intentionally plan for activities and events that enable us to put our spiritual gifts together in a way that will engage our community with the truth about who Jesus is. I believe that we must create an evangelism ministry team that will help us put into action these plans and activities and organizations and events that will enable us to share the gospel and not rely on those who are spiritually gifted to do so. This is one of the things that we're going to be talking about in the days ahead. So we see that this this attitude of outreach is rooted in evangelism, but secondly, it is grounded in doctrine. We're going to read verses 22 through 26 here. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them, all with resolute heart, to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So the news of the birthing of this church and of its formidable size has somehow reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so likely Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, decides to send this entrusted brother Barnabas to see exactly what's taking place in Antioch. Now we know the name Barnabas. We're first introduced to him in Acts chapter 4, and here he sells a parcel of land and shares it with the believing community to meet the needs that are evident within this fast-growing body of believers. So when Barnabas arrives in Antioch and he sees for himself what is taking place, the grace of the Lord being dispensed amongst the Gentile nation, he was overjoyed to see what was taking place. His priority was to encourage them to be faithful to the Lord. Why? Because our faithfulness to the Lord isn't going to be carried out by emotion alone. Our faithfulness to the Lord is going to be carried out with a commitment to remain obedient. They were living in a very promiscuous city, and it was going to be very, very challenging for them to remain faithful. How many times have we seen someone come to the Lord who is filled with joy and very quickly they fall away through temptation 
or because they haven't had adequate instruction in what it means to live a life for the Lord. We've seen it so many times that I imagine as I even mention that, names and faces come to mind as you remember someone who so enthusiastically gave their life to Christ and you've not seen him in a church in years and years. You have no idea what's become of them. Well, we learned that while Barnabas was with them, considerable numbers were coming to faith in Christ. And so the need of the church was very obvious to Barnabas. Not only was he going to encourage them with a resoluteness of heart, but he understood that this rapidly growing, this rapidly growing church needed to be grounded in sound doctrine. So what did he do? He recognized that he needed help. And so he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, this is where we lose sight of the amount of time that has transpired in the book of Acts. Some estimate that as many as 10 years have passed since we learn in Acts 9.30 that Saul left Judea and went to his home region of Cilicia. So when Barnabas decides to go find Saul, he has to go and look for him. The phrase to look for means a laborious search with great difficulty. It wasn't like he could pick out a phone book or go online and Google search for Saul of Tarsus. He had to physically go, had his boots on the ground, and was walking through the region looking for this individual by the name of Saul. Finally, he finds him, and they return to Antioch. And what does verse 26 tell us? Verse 26 tells us that Barnabas and Saul spent an entire year teaching these new believers. Life was very, very different then as it is today. To spend a year with someone wouldn't mean a year of Sundays. It would mean a year, being taught daily in the temple, being taught daily in the home. Just as the new church in Acts chapter 2 were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, it is more than likely that these new believers in Antioch were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. In order for them... To live out their Christian faith, they needed to be grounded in doctrine. Now, this is a completed picture of the Great Commission. It is new believers being made into disciples. A disciple that doesn't evangelize is incomplete. A new convert that isn't discipled is incomplete. And so here we see this picture being completed through the life of Paul and Barnabas at the church in Antioch, where these new believers are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, Paul and Barnabas, for a year. It isn't enough that someone makes a profession of faith. They must be properly taught the things of God so that they can grow and mature in their faith. A shallow faith is going to leave us susceptible the false doctrine. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about if 
all you knew about the gospel message was that Jesus was the Son of God, that He came to the earth and died in your place, that He was raised again on the third day, and He ascended back into heaven. And if you place your faith in what He did for you on the cross, you will be saved. Well, that's good news, right? But is that all the good news? If that was all we knew about the gospel message which, by the way, is what fills the the writing in the New Testament, if that was all we knew, how complete would our understanding of God be? How completely would we be able to live out our life in Christ? Where would our understanding of God's purposes and plans, His promises, His expectations, His desires, how would we ever know those things if all we knew was the simple John 3.16 message. You see, a shallow faith is going to leave us susceptible to false doctrine. We read this in Ephesians 4.14. Paul writing this, As a result, we are no longer to be children, young and immature in our faith, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I wonder how many Christians so know know so little about the truth of God's Word that after their profession of faith, somehow they have been led to believe that if they don't do certain things, they're not going to be saved. If they don't give a certain amount, they're not going to be saved. If they don't serve in a certain capacity, then they're not going to be saved. How many Christians, professing Christians, are out there who believe that as long as you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you can live your life however you desire. You can have multiple wives. You can have mistresses. You can do whatever seems right in your own eyes because, after all, you don't understand any of God's standards. Do we not know anything about professing Christians that is obviously contradictory to the truth of God's Word? Absolutely. You see, we have to be grounded in our faith Otherwise, we're going to be susceptible to false teaching. This is exactly what Barnabas and Saul were committed to, was grounding these new believers in the church of Antioch. Now, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and this is an important distinction. The word Christian means of the party of Jesus. That's what it means, of the party of Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us how the disciples got that name, but most believe that the name was given to the Christians in a form of mockery. It was a term of derision. It was an insult to be called a Christian, but those in Antioch, the the, the unbelieving community in Antioch saw the lifestyle. They knew that they followed Christ and they obeyed His teachings and they called them Christians accordingly. But the disciples transformed it into a title of honor and you and I are called Christians today out of what was begun at this church in Antioch by the evangelistic efforts of some very faithful Jews and Greek-speaking Jews who were witnessing to others about Christ. We must be willing to live for Christ no matter what name we might be called. I had a brother who was new in Christ, and he was doing his very best to live for Christ. And one of the buddies he worked with called him born again. 
And he wasn't doing that as a term of affection. It was a term of derision. Well, there it goes, born again. There it goes, the Jesus freak. There it goes, the religious fanatic. We need to live for Christ no matter what name we might be called by the unbelieving community. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You remember that childhood phrase we would hear? We would say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You remember hearing that? You might have even said that. And you would run into your room and you would slam the door and you would fall on your bed and you would burst into tears. Because we learned as a little child that sticks and stones and the names kids are going to call us are going to hurt us. And so we learn to protect ourselves. I will do whatever I must to protect myself from getting hurt. I am not going to be risk. I'm not going to risk being called a name that I don't want to be called. We must be distinct in our beliefs, in our values, and in our lifestyle as we strive to follow Christ and to live for Him. So how is this attitude of outreach included in our own personal doctrine? How is our attitude of outreach woven into the church's doctrinal statement? How is it understood as our responsibility and our mission as a New Testament church based upon what the Bible teaches? Is there a doctrine of outreach in what the church believes? Do we not believe that we have been given the great commission that we are to share the gospel with others and make disciples. We can call ourselves a Christian church, but unless the lives being lived out by our members of this church are bold in their witness for Christ, that our community can say that we are a people who belong to Christ, unless we're doing that, our name means nothing. If we call ourselves Christians, if we call this place a Christian church, and no one sees our commitment for Christ, no one sees the distinctiveness of our values, no one hears the gospel preached from us, we can call ourselves whatever we want. But we're probably not being Christian. It doesn't mean that our salvation is based upon us doing those things, but it is the expectation that as Christians we will do these things. Now the third trait in an attitude of outreach is a strong, they're being strong in love. Verses 27 through 30. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of, the, any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now, there's nothing known about this man named Agabus <clears throat> other than his inclusion here in Acts chapter 11. He told of a great famine that would be in the land. 
Luke affirms that there was a famine in the land during the reign of Claudius, and Jewish historians tell us that there was a famine in Israel in 45 and in 46, and it was very likely that this prophetic message enabled the Christians who were part of the believing community to at least make it through the famine with the help of their brothers and sisters in Christ. The believers in Antioch didn't hesitate to help. Each of them gave to the church as they had means, and they sent Paul and Barnabas to deliver that gift. An attitude of outreach should always include helping those in need, not just here, but wherever we can, because sharing what we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ is rooted in our love for our spiritual family. What we give supports the ministries of our church and the ministries and other parts of the world. Being strong in love goes beyond what we give financially. That many times is the easiest thing to do. But being strong in love also reaches, into, reaches out into what we invest personally in the lives of other people. Many are willing to give a few bucks, but few are willing to invest serious time and energy and effort into the life of another person. Paul and Barnabas spent a year at the church of Antioch. We might feel put out if we're asked to teach an hour a week. I don't want to give up of my free time. I don't want to have to study and prepare. I don't want to sacrifice something that I value. But what do we value more? Our own personal life and the pleasure that we find in living our own personal life Or do we love the family of God and those that have come into the family of God enough to give to them what they really need more than anything else? And that is personal time and energy and investment so they can grow and mature in their walk in the Lord. The fourth trait in an attitude of outreach is motivated by obedience. This is where we look over at Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, verse 1 mentions the leaders of the church, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, and these three other men that we really don't know anything about. And while they were ministering to the Lord, and what that means is while they were carrying out the regular duties in terms of leading the church, praying, teaching, singing, whatever it was that they were doing, during this time, God tells them to send Barnabas and Saul to the work that the Lord has prepared for them. So they fasted and they prayed some more. They laid their hands on them and they sent Paul and Barnabas away. I want you to think about this. God is sending away two of the five named spiritual leaders of the church. Paul and Barnabas undoubtedly are the backbone of the church at Antioch. And this sending away, this daunting directive, is mentioned as casually as if Paul and Barnabas were sent to the store to pick up some things that the church was in need of. 
Paul and Barnabas were leaving Antioch for the work that the Lord had called them to, and there was no debate, there was no discussion, there was no questioning, there was no doubting, there was no resistance. They simply fasted and prayed, and they laid hands on them, and they sent them off. What is our response when we sense that God is calling us to do something difficult? When God very clearly speaks and is pushing us out of our comfort zone, what is our response? Are we like Jonah and we run the other way? Are we like Moses who makes a bunch of excuses? I I don't know what to say and I don't speak very well and surely somebody else is more capable than I. Or do we do what Paul and Barnabas did? They prayed and they obeyed. Is our allegiance to obey God Or is our allegiance to living a comfortable, predictable life where we're not challenged at all, where we have the ability to define our own comfort zone? This sending of Paul and Barnabas is the first of four missionary journeys that are referenced in the book of Acts. Each of these missionary journeys would have a lasting and profound impact on the world. Here's what Paul had to say about his calling, about his preference for a comfortable and predictable environment. He wrote to the church at Philippi, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Let me ask you again. Are we motivated by obedience to God's call and command? Or are we more interested in a life that is predictable and comfortable to us? You see, the call on Paul's life, the call on the life of the apostles, was going to have a lasting impact on the world. You and I are here today because of that call. Now, our call may never reach the mass of impact the way it did for Paul or the disciples, but I will absolutely guarantee you this. Your call will make a lasting impact in the kingdom of God because God has called you to serve him and his kingdom's work. It might be no more than the lives of five individuals, 
We don't know who it is. We don't know how it's going to impact the world. But I'll tell you this. It will make a difference. Because we serve the God of the impossible who desires to do in us abundantly beyond all that we ask or think as we give ourselves to Him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray that you would speak to the depth of our hearts of how we have become so complacent in this thing called outreach, this evangelism, this uncomfortableness that we have in talking about Jesus. This name that we agree is above every name, the name by which only salvation can be found in, the name that brings the power of salvation to the lost, and yet we're scared to death to speak about you. God, I pray that there would be a great sense of inconsistency in our heart as we wrestle with that reality. I pray that we would pray for greater boldness as we looked at in Acts chapter 4. That we would be willing to suffer insult and ridicule because we take a stand for you. That we would identify being called a Christian means being of the party of Christ and to be of that party proudly, joyfully, and committed to telling others about you. Father, we pray that you would birth within our hearts, individually and corporately, a desire to be a church of outreach, to carry the benefit of this God that we serve, the joy of this family that we worship with, the difference that our salvation has made in our lives. We take all of that and we allow others to experience that very same thing. Help us to be generous with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's